Welcome to Combo Chain, a JRPG Games Club podcast. I'm Paul Davis. And I'm Elisa James. And in this episode, we're covering Live Alive, Live Alive. I, I <laughs> don't know. Do you, do you have any idea, Lisa? None, but I just go with Live Alive because I don't know why it just sounds better to my ears, <laughs> yeah. but I'm probably wrong. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's a canonical canonical. <laughs> pronunciation i i just go with live alive so we'll we'll probably go back and forth exactly (laughs) (laughs) sorry guys yeah it's a 94 square jrpg that didn't come to the west until this year so lisa like what was your like awareness of this game i assume you didn't play the snes version or super famicom version I didn't. I really, I realized I missed out on, because I had a Super Nintendo and I missed out on so many like JRPG gems because I didn't really play that genre back then. So I think that was my problem. So I only got into it, I think around what, like PlayStation era. That's mm-hmm. when I started playing the JRPGs. But when I heard about it, it sounded really intriguing because there's just so many great like games off of that system. And the fact that there was like this hidden gem that like just never made it to the West. And it had like the, you know, and of course it involves the same person who did Octopath Travel, which immediately piqued my interest and had the same similar setup of like various scenarios that kind of converge at the end. And, and then from there, like I, I actually got the game and I was, I was hooked. And, but that was, that was pretty, obviously I was very recently like with this re-release. Yeah, I'm really similar. I was really intrigued by it. I you would read about it occasionally and hear about it in podcasts and whatnot. And like, it just sounded like such a cool idea and such a bummer that it hadn't come to the West. And it's really interesting. Despite that, it seems like it's had a pretty major influence just through like fan translations and whatnot on the indie scene. Yeah. Um, I think, I, I mean, I think I remember reading that the, the creator of Undertale was uh, pretty influenced by it. And I was just like, had this kind of like legacy as like a lost gem or something. And so when it was announced that it was coming to the Switch in PC, I was really, really excited to finally give it a try. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's really great that now, like everyone else, is able to uh, to, to to appreciate this game now. Considering, like, like you said, like the history of it, that it didn't really, for various reasons, that wasn't its fault. It just didn't perform very well, and it wasn't promoted very well, and then it just kind of got like trapped on an old system. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm really glad now that like years later, the director is able to see people really enjoy his work yeah totally totally and it seems like it's been pretty successful i don't yeah yeah i mean i don't know exactly what the sales figures are but i've seen a ton of like social media chatter about it and whatnot 
Yeah, same here. Yeah, yeah. I don't really know what the what the what the sales look like. Huh? Wonder if they ever posted them. Let's see. I don't know why I have to always look this stuff up. <laughs> no, <that's good>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious okay. too. So it says here that in Japan alone, according to Famitsu, it it sold five hundred thousand. That's that's and pretty that, good. Yeah, that that's yeah, and that's from Japan alone. So that that's really good. Yeah. Well, maybe he'll finally get to make the uh, sequel that he's always wanted to make. That'd be awesome. I hope so. Yeah, definitely. Very cool game. But yeah, we'll get into that. So yeah, let's talk about the development of the game. So it was developed by Development Division 5 of Square, which was best known for uh, making the Final Fantasy games. And the game was uh, Takashi Tokita's first time as a director. Before that, he'd worked as a designer on Hanjuku Hero, which I'm not familiar with, and Final Fantasy IV. The basic idea was to make an RPG where players could experience several separate stories at once, as opposed to like something like Final Fantasy, where the smaller stories were all kind of linked in to a larger story arc. So the production was made possible by the Super Famicom ROM's growing storage capacity. It was a, a 16 megabit cartridge, meaning it was probably ridiculously expensive at release. I don't remember. I don't know if you remember the pricing on some of these games. The yeah, to the yeah. West, but like, <laughs> yeah, I think I think uh, Fantasy Star 4 went for like 100 bucks or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it was... It- <laughs> Yeah, I remember even as a little girl seeing like the flyers for some of these cartridge games. Like $70, $80 games were very normal back then. It was just, there was like no sort of like agreed upon pricing back then. Mm-hmm. It was whatever they wanted. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's been kind of established as part of why JRPGs didn't really get big until the. <clears throat> CD era because uh, they were so often like more expensive because they're such huge, huge cartridges. Exactly. And I wouldn't be surprised if that played a role in it not coming to the West because I know that a few other square JRPGs weren't localized because cartridge size was so big. Yeah, that's so true. I think, yeah, I think same case with the first star ocean yeah so their goal was for players to be able to finish each section or scenario in a day and some of the staff had worked on either hanjuku hero or the final fantasy series as well like designer nobuyuki anu and lead programmer umiyaki fukaya so production started in december 1993 and it took about a year and a half to make the whole thing including the planning process. Takeda had trouble getting used to his new job as director, and he found it challenging that he couldn't be as involved with the, the graphics as he had been for uh, Final Fantasy IV. Fukaya did all the programming for the games, except for the menus and the fights. And many of the ideas for the worlds came from other staff members. And basically, Tokita chose from the ones he thought were best. So... The Middle Ages scenario was the first one to be made, and it helped them shape both the overall story and the way the game is played. In an early iteration of the game, scenarios got harder as you went through them, but it got rid of that so players could do them in any order they wanted. Anu was in charge of designing the battle system, and he wanted to make a strategic game 
Takiti called it a real-time shogi, which I think is an interesting, pretty accurate term. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Speaking of someone who's experienced with shogi is messing around with it in uh, Yakuza. <laughs> <laughs> So imperfect. <laughs> yeah. They really wanted to kind of shake up how RPGs were usually designed at the time. And they had a number of ideas didn't get a number of ideas didn't get implemented. One of which was to not show hit points, but instead have the character act like they were hurt or look weaker as they took damage. And that is definitely something that later RPGs would adopt, but might have been hard to really communicate on the screen with the Super Famicom's capabilities. Exactly. Like both, yeah, both its capabilities and like the, the limited sprite art. There's only so much you can do with such a small little like representation of a character. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. So, yeah, basically uh, they had uh, each setting had its own lead artist. This was possible because Square had close ties to the manga publisher Doga Kukan, which uh, worked with a number of artists that ended up working on the game. So, uh, yeah, there was uh, Yoshihide Fujiwara, who did Imperial China, Yoshinori Kobayashi, who did the prehistory uh, segment, Osamu Ishiwata, who did the Wild West. Yumi Tamura did the Far Future. Menagawa did Present Day. Gosho Ayama did a Twilight of Edo Japan. And Kazuhiko Shimamoto did the Near Future segments. On top of that, uh, the Square employee uh, Kiyofumi Cat did more of the character art, including designs for the uh, Lord of the Dark story. Yukiko uh, Sasaki, who worked on Final Fantasy IV as a map designer, made some of the other graphics in the game. So having more than one person design a character wasn't part of the original plan, but it worked out well with the kind of like omnibus storyline and to kind of create like a clear division between the different different scenarios. Yeah. But this was very unusual at the time. Still is, with the exception of, I don't know, maybe the Blades and Blade Chronicles 2. It's like, yeah. traditionally, all art direction is done by a single graphic designer or a small team of designers that work under one lead. Exactly. And so, yeah, Fujiwara was well known for his work on the man on the manga Kenji, which was a martial arts manga. And you want to guess the idea prevalent at the time that women who are good at martial arts have big breasts. <laughs> <laughs> this apparently was a priority for him. So he gave the imperial China protagonist, a female student, a quote unquote tighter body, which sounds odd. Yeah, that's a very interesting way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Shimamoto's original plan for his characters is to make them look more uh, anime style. But when he saw the work of the other designers, he changed his plan to make the characters look like traditional manga. Matsu, Akira's friend in that segment, looked a lot like the actor Aku Matsuda. And Ishiwada based the main character of the uh, Wild West on Clint Eastwood for his many cowboy roles. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Ayama made Boromaru quickly, and Hida asked him to model the character Ode, Ode Ayo after the Japanese warlord Oda Nobunaga. And then Tamura, she was in the middle of working on Dara when she was asked to work on the game, and it's the only time that she ever designed characters for a video game. 
Meanwhile, uh, Kat used uh, templates from the Final Fantasy series to make the sprites for the Middle Ages cast. For example, Orsted is a, a direct copy of the Warrior of Light. So yeah, as far as uh, story-wise, uh, Takeda and Anu worked together to write the plot. And Takeda had uh, basically gotten ideas from the tone and dramatic parts of the manga uh, Devil Man. So the prehistory story was based on the manga series The First Human Gaiatris, and the Old West stories was based on old westerns like Shane. Classic mecha manga and anime from the past were referenced a few times in the near future story. In the present day story, there were references to old martial arts movies, and the name of the main character was made up of kanji symbols from the names of four famous ref- wrestlers. 2001, Space Odyssey, and Alien were big influences on the story of a distant future. A member of the development team came up with the name Cube, which was a reference to Stanley Kubrick. And in the Middle Ages story, the relationship between Orsted and Strybo was like the one between Cecil Harvey and Kane Highwind in Final Fantasy. Yeah, yeah, you definitely see that. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Totally. Originally, Takeda was ambivalent about making a story about the Middle Ages because he thought it was too similar to Final Fantasy, Saga, and the Mana series. But he did take some inspiration from Romancing Saga, using kind of the freedom of choice in that game as a kind of basis for the last chapter where the main character could be chosen. Anu came up with the recurring joke character, Wantanabe, who's an ordinary man who has bad luck in each era to stand it for the ordinary people who die in each scenario. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Kind of like a pathetic patches. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say a a more tragic version of the cabbage sales guy from Avatar Last Airbender. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one, too. Yeah. And the big one, and I feel like maybe this has had, prior to the recent release, had a bigger imprint in the West, was Yoko Shimamura's music for the game. Uh, That definitely, I think also through Toby Fox and Undertale, kind of got a big following in the West. So yeah, she wrote and put together the music. It was her first job after joining Square, and she was the only composer for it. And uh, Megalomania, which is really well known, and I believe inspired a song in Undertale. Yeah, like he literally named the song after that song. <laughs> he did. Okay. Uh, yeah, I've never played Undertale. But. I think that, oh my gosh, Undertale fans probably going to kill me, but I think that was the theme that plays if you fight Sans as a boss. Okay. I, I I need to I need to play Undertale. I have no idea why I've never gotten around to it. I know it's like sitting in my Steam and like I know most of the game, but I haven't played it, and it looks really <laughs> fun. <laughs> totally, totally. So yeah, I mean that is a badass song, and uh, yeah. basically she used a simulated pipe organ to make Odio's theme. And also put that in Megalomania to uh, kind of reference its uh, recurring threats. Shimamura found it hardest to write music for the Middle Ages, even though uh, that was one of the first things Takeda asked for. Nobu Umatsu, who wrote the music for Final Fantasy, heard about her challenges and offered to help. So yeah, Takeda had said that a remake would only 
come about if enough fans asked for it. And there was a lot of fan outpouring. And uh, he also mentioned that uh, there had been several failed efforts to produce a sequel or remake. But he got the opportunity after working on Octopath Traveler, which shares a lot with this game. He uh, basically was inspired to revamp Live Alive in the kind of HD 2D style of that game, which is kind of like sprite art with 3D graphics. Fortunately, not as many bloom effects in this game. Yeah. (laughs) And what also helped to get it remade was that Square Enix's CEO, Suki Suda, basically has got an initiative going on where he wants to rework classic titles utilizing the HD 2D style. We're getting the Dragon Quest and that style and whatnot. So Live Alive kind of topped that list. So I think that helped push it over the top too. Definitely. So production of the remake started in 2019 and it was difficult because of COVID, of course, and also just managing the different play styles in it in a new engine. So Team Asano of uh, Square Enix and History of Japan collaborated on the remake. Tokita produced with Shun Sasaki of Historia serving as director. But most of the crew was young and had no ties to the original game. Sasaki was shocked to learn that a new version of Live Live was being made, but she agreed to be involved and helped with the assets. And basically, we'll go into the changes a little later, but more or less, the user interface and audio effects have been modernized, and the game's been better balanced, and the character designs have been reimagined. There's also some just basic kind of quality of life additions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In terms of gameplay, the player assumes the persona of eight distinct protagonists over nine unique stories. And while all the stories share the same fundamental principles, they all have their own distinct tricks, such as the use of stealth, the absence of regular fights, or the use of telepathy to discover new information. With the exception of a single scenario, the player character explores a variety of theme locales from overworlds to dungeons. Each scenario has its own set of rules for what will initiate a fight. Some have random encounters, other feature avoidable opponent sprites, and some trigger automatically. 
So all these kind of different design elements, it just depends on the themes and settings of that scenario. And it's all customized like and built specifically for that scenario so it fits in better. So each every scenario, however, does employ the same turn-based battle system in which the player character and, in certain cases, a party engage in combat against adversaries on a 7x7 seven seven grid, whereas individual characters may move and execute actions like attacking or utilizing special talents. There's no time restriction on using skills, but it may take many rounds for some of them to fully charge. When used, these abilities provide tactile-based special effects, such as the ability to heal a character or deliver elemental damage. And while in some scenarios, character advancement is hidden behind plot events, in others, it's unlocked when the player gains experience and levels up, granting access to new skills. Now, there's one narrative that participants pick up a tactic by seeing an adversary use it. And each playable character also has access to a variety of equipable and usable goods, such as weapons, armors, and potions. The 2022 remake is faithful to the original in terms of gameplay, while it has been reworked to fit the new visual style and streamlined in certain places. For instance, health and charge bars are introduced to show how much time passes until a move is actually performed, and there's also an optional radar system that pinpoints the location of goals and things and commodities that may be obtained now shimmer uh, when they catch the light. Uh, so it's like little, like like we said before, little quality of life changes, things like that have been added and reworked to make the game a bit more like accessible and modernized, which is really nice. But the core of it is pretty much the same. Like if you went from this to the Super Nintendo version, you really wouldn't have much trouble with it. Yeah, I spent a few hours, you know, a couple hours playing the S of the Super Nintendo version, and yeah, I was I was surprised like how how similar it was. Yeah. And also like just how good it felt to play for when it was made. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's always shocking. That was how I felt too when I had played the the Nintendo DS Chrono Trigger port and then I went to the any a Super Nintendo one and yeah, very shocking and how little was really changed other than like just kind of up-resing the music a bit and whatnot. But mm-hmm. sh- yeah, these, these Super Nintendo games really hold up so well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So shall we move on to the story? Yep. All right.
so yeah, the story of the game, basically, even though you can play these in any order, we'll just sort of do it in sort of chronological order. Mm-hmm. So we start out with the prehistory. And in it, a group of ancient cavemen are getting ready to kill a lady called Baru in honor of her go- of their god, a resurrected Tyrannosaurus named Odo. She makes her way south where she takes refuge in a cave inhabited by members of another tribe and lives off the food she steals from them. A young caveman Nick called Pogo finds her and falls in love with her. So he agrees to help her stay hidden from the rest of the clan. The northern Ku tribe attempts to collect her, but Pogo repels them. Unfortunately, Baru is exposed in the process, and uh, the elder bans him and Pogo's gorilla pal, Gory, from the village. It's always good to have a gorilla pal. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. It's so cute. <laughs> so eventually, as you wind through, Pogo has to face Odo in battle. And a northern tribesman called Zack comes to his aid. After the beast is destroyed, peace is achieved between the two tribes. Um, next up in chronological order is Imperial China, the successor. An elderly Chinese Kung Fu teacher of the Irvin Hart Kung Fu School accepts three pupils to teach before his death. While the teacher is absent one day, the dojo is invaded by a rival dojo, seeking retribution for an insult. After losing two of their pupils, the master and the last student, whom the player has invested the most time in training, seek revenge. The opposing school, commanded by O.D. Wan Lee, is beaten, but the master dies, having exhausted the last of his power in the struggle. The student then becomes the new master of the tradition and recruits a fresh crop of disciples. So, yeah, then after that, you've got Twilight of Edo, Japan, the infiltrator. So, uh, Odio is a, a shadowy person from medieval Japan who uh, seeks to destabilize the country. The Enma ninja clan sends Oboro Maru, one of their ninja, to free a prisoner who can restore peace in Japan and eliminate the threat posed by Odeayu. Once the prisoner is free, the captive fights with Oboro against Odeayu. The prisoner identifies himself as Oma Sakamoto after Odeayu's death. Oboro, after that, is free to decide between going back to the Enma or helping Raima restore Japan. So next we have the Wild West, the Wanderer. In this Western-inspired scenario, the Sundown Kid and his nemesis, the bounty hunter Mad Dog, arrive in Success Town, a town plagued by the Crazy Bunch. They're commanded by Odeo, the lone survivor of the 7th Cavalry Division. When When the citizens of Sundown stand up to the bandits, the outlaws vow to destroy the town as punishment. To help Sundown and the citizens of the town, Mad Dog decides to assist them in preparing a defensive strategy. Mad Dog challenges Sundown to a last combat after the town has emerged triumphant from war. The player may choose to either murder Mad Dog or escape. And then we move on to present day, the strongest. So Masaru Takuharu wants to become the strongest person in the world, believing that defeating opponents in each fighting style would accomplish this goal. And while Masaru succeeds, he's uh, confronted by another fighter, 
Odio Bright, who has been killing his opponents. Odio Bright challenges Masaru, who defeats him using his combined learned abilities. And then after that, we have the near future, the outsider. And this the note, this is heavily inspired by the, specifically the manga, which is way more in depth than the than the, uh, than the animated movie. Yeah, um, it's like it's like almost like legally actionable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we have the Crusaders, a motorcycle game from Japan's near future have started kidnapping individuals for reasons that are yet unclear. Akira Tadokoro, a young orphan with telepathic abilities, lives in an orphanage with his sister. Akira and his companion Lawless go out to rescue one of the orphanage's kids when the Crusaders capture him. Akira finds the Crusaders' stronghold and the government of Japan of Japan's plan to liquefy citizens and use them to fuel a massive idol called Odeo. Lawless gives his life so that Akira might kill Odeo using an ancient mech known as the Steel Titan. Yeah, so then we have the distant future, the mechanical heart. So in the far future, an extraterrestrial threat known as the Behemoth is being brought back to Earth on the spaceship Cogito Ergosum. What does that mean again? That is such a... <laughs> okay, I'm going to look this up. Yeah, yeah, I got it. Because I don't want to mean something like, wait. <laughs> um, it means I should have known this. English major here. I think, therefore, I am. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Kato, the mechanic, builds a ball-shaped robot and gives it the witty moniker Cube. So you take control of Cube as it meets the ship's crew and learns about its surroundings. But then the spacecraft starts acting up and one of the crew members, Kirk, dies in a mysterious accident. The behemoth is let loose, killing the crew members Huey and Rachel. Despite this, the surviving crew members are more focused on their grudges against one another than dealing with the behemoth. This is all, as we mentioned earlier, very, very influenced by Alien. It turns out that E-10, the ship's computer, is to blame. So Cube hacks into the computer and defeats it. So then we're getting into a real juicy uh, scenario. The Middle Ages, the Lord of Dark. And so after completing the first seven chapters, the uh, medieval chapter is unlocked. And this is this would be it. A brave knight named Orsted. Orsted? No. Yeah. Orsted, right? Yeah, I think so. Okay. A brave knight named Orsted, a hero beloved by the people, defeats his best friend, the wizard Strabo, in the final round of a fighting tournament. He wins the right to marry Princess Alethea of Lucrece. The demon king adopts her that night. Orsted and Strabo track down the knight Hashi and the priest Uranus, the heroes responsible for vanquishing the demon king 30 years before, and get them to help them. Although they succeed in their battle against the demon king, not everyone survives. Hashi succumbs to the sickness Alicia disappears, and Strabo is presumably crushed to death by falling boulders. After suffering defeat, Orsted and Uranus go back to Lucretia. Orsted is deceived into killing the king of Lucretia by the demon king. He's imprisoned on charges of being the demon king himself, but is able to get away with Uranus's aid. 
When Orsted goes back to the mountain of the Demon King, he discovers a revived Strabo who had pretended to be dead. Because he was envious of Orsted, Strabo sold his soul to become the new Demon King by convincing Orsted to slay the current one. Orsted has no choice but to kill Strabo. He then saves Alicia, but she kills herself after confessing her love for Strabo. As Orsted's anguish reaches a breaking point, he chooses to become the new Demon King, taking the name Odio. Next, he exacts his vengeance on the whole town of Lucretia by eliminating its inhabitants. So yeah, then you move on to the final chapter, one that pulls everything together. So yeah, the final one is Dominion of Hate. And the heroes from the previous seven chapters are gathered by Orsted for one last showdown amid the desolate and gray landscape of Lucretia. You select one of the heroes from the past scenarios who gets to know the other six and may enlist them in his party. Throughout the chapter, you have the opportunity to explore extra dungeons, some of which hold strong equipment, and meet Strybo, who wonders what kind of monster his envy has created. The, the heroes face Orsted, who first doubts their intentions before transforming into a demon to oppose them. But after being vanquished, he returns to human form and begs the hero to put an end to his life. So you have basically have an option. If, if the hero kills him, he's going to be trapped in that area forever. But if he spares him, he'll be able to escape. If the hero declines, Orsted will, la will launch another assault, pitting each hero against an instance of Odio from each of their own scenarios. Once you beat that Odio, Orsted is baffled about why he keeps losing. And it turns out that he keeps losing because each hero has a, their own motive for fighting and their own reason to defeat this cosmic evil. Yep. And they share it with Orsted. So Orsted comes to his senses again and offers to send them back to the original locations and times. He passes away and Lucrece is saved. Now, here's a twist. <laughs> if you selected Orsted as the main protagonist for the last chapter, you basically play each of Odio's seven reincarnations. And if you're successful in eliminating all the heroes, you will be abandoned in a lifeless Lucrece. You can also opt to trigger Armageddon, wiping out all of space-time. So yeah, it gets pretty dark and cosmic if you go that route. Yeah, yeah, it does. It like it reminds me of this one game. It's a Nippon Ichi game. I'm trying to remember the name of it. It's like on PlayStation Two era. Soul, I think a Soul Nomad, right? Name rings a bell, but I'm not familiar yeah. with it. It, it kind of reminds me of that because after you beat the main scenario, you're able to play. A you're able to make a choice in the very beginning that puts you on a different path. And basically, you're, you turn your protagonist into a villain protagonist. And at the very end, you have, like, two choices after you've already, like, defeated, like, everyone who's trying to stop you. You can either decide to lose in the final battle and then be resealed. Or you can win, and then you essentially trigger, like, uh, the end of all of space-time. So it's just like, wow. of that. yeah, <laughs> it's a great game, actually. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. We should maybe, uh, we should maybe do that in the future. 
Oh, definitely. Yeah, that'd be a great game to cover. Cool. Yeah. So, yeah, let's move on to our uh, final thoughts. So, I mean, I, I was out saying before, like, it's really cool how much I end up enjoying these, like, really class or even, like, hidden gem type Super Nintendo games. Just seeing kind of like that level of polish and innovation. Being in this era where you have, like, ga- gaming is games in general are, like, cheaper to make, like, way cheaper. So you can have people really throwing a lot of ambition and gather a lot of talent into like collaborating and making these like really like just well, very well executed games. So it's like high ambition, well executed, just really great combinations of that. And then it doesn't mm-hmm. like cost the company like millions of dollars. So you have like tons of these kinds of games like on these like older sons, older system. And it's just really cool seeing how well Live Alive does this concept of like the separate stories that converge together at the very end, but like making them so different. Like the fact that so much effort went into not only separating the setting, the art design, the the, the gameplay, the little unique trick, like just, it's really great. Like I'm just mm. kind of blown away by like just how creative that is. I also really love the idea of playing you actually playing through a villainous a villain's backstory with Orsted. Like that was really clever. And it, and it's mm-hmm. funny how you really don't see that to this day. Like you little like you playing like kind of like that more standard-ish sort of nightly story and then you're like, "Oh, wow, this person is the villain." <laughs> like you don't get that. And it's such a great like it's such a great finisher and it, and it flows really well. It doesn't come out of nowhere. Like it makes sense. You're seeing it happen and you're expecting kind of like that trope of, well, something will happen and it'll turn out good in the end, but it's just, no, it doesn't. <laughs> oh yeah. I wish, I wish more modern JRPGs gave, had that kind of like option or that kind of twist. Exactly. Yeah. I really would love to see that. So, and I'm thinking about it, too, in terms of which ones I like best. I do think, yeah, some of them did come out a little better. And I feel like some of it depends on your taste. And others is just naturally, like, certain mechanics would be a little harder to implement. But in general, like, I'm really just shocked that, like, all of them being surprisingly, like, well-developed, especially from just, like, a director who really came from just pretty much doing JRPGs. So that's really, really, and definitely credit to developers as well, who also like, because I think the team was the Final Fantasy team, right? Yeah, primarily. 
yeah, that's a lot of credit to them that they were all able to pull off so many different mechanics, knowing that they really missed that point with developing pretty standard JRPGs. So that was that, that I always think about that and how impressive that is. Yeah. Um, and the consistency of quality between, I mean, there's definitely shared like mechanics and whatnot, but they've got making seven mini games that are all. <laughs> <laughs> not many games, but seven small JRPGs, all with their own unique kind of twists and whatnot. Exactly. And to have a pretty consistent quality all across the board is pretty amazing. Yeah, that is. It really is. And then also what I really love, too, is like like how much the choices matter. Like it really does actually create these different endings. And, and I feel like that's something that a lot of choice based games to this day still struggle with giving you choices that actually completely affect the direction of the game like and having those different dramatically different endings especially the one where even just depending on whether you're playing as the other heroes or as orsted like dramatically switches over the scenario of that final like part and what your goal is like that was really cool and then even at the end with him if you want to just live in a lifeless like town or if you just are at that point where you want everything gone like that was really cool as well that they even gave you the choice for that yeah yeah it's yeah it's it's really the state changes and whatnot are yeah pretty impressive i mean it's just all, all in all it's like so forward thinking it's really kind of remarkable um mm-hmm. and a lot of this stuff that you see in this game wouldn't really be kind of kind of adopted by JRPGs until at least the next generation, if not later. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And some of it just, <laughs> some of these great innovations, like for the most part, haven't been. So <laughs> I know it's just like blows my mind. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I was really surprised when I went back to the SNES version and just was like, wow, this is rock solid. Like they really changed very little in the remake and it's still the original plays great. And like I said, it's just amazing how forward thinking it was and the variety of play styles and whatnot are just really unique and innovative. I love the tile-based combat system. I feel like it might have been an inspiration on the last game that we did, Radiant Historia's Combat. Yeah, yeah. Just a really cool, really cool way of like creating a sort of cross between a strategy RPG and a kind of just more traditional Final Fantasy style JRPG. So, yeah, and I mean... It's so clear that like Takeda was involved in both this game and Octopath Traveler because they s- share so much like in the just kind of general game concepts and structure. And honestly, I feel like this game pull- like pulls it all together much better than Octopath Traveler does. Yeah, yeah. And I was one of the people that actually really liked how it pulled it together. But I definitely agree. I think this game really executes that even better like, yeah. by far. Yeah, it's it's really really impressive. You know, I mean, one one kind of minor nitpick is that I felt like 
it suffered from some of the pacing issues that were common to JRPGs of the time. Once you like get in deeper into the scenarios, are really breezy play. But like all JRPGs of that time, they can take a little while to get going. And and uh, basically having to go through like six different scenarios where you have to do this sort of like setup can be a little, I don't know. I don't know. I, I felt like that could have been paced a little bit better. And right, right. for me, like some of the play styles worked better than others. I, did, I was not really feeling the stealth aspects in the Imperial China scenario, mm-hmm. but that's more of a me thing. Like I just in general don't really like stealth in games. But um, I understand. Yeah. I'm more of the kind of like run in and just like fight everyone. <laughs> Yeah, me too. I Guns mean, blazing. like I love, I love the Dishonored games, but like I played those just like, like they were just like first person, like action games. I didn't yeah. do any of but yeah, I mean, overall, this is just like such like a fascinating and forward thinking game. And I'm so glad that we got the opportunity to play this again, like in an updated and remastered form. And it, so many of the innovations feel like just as unique today as they probably did back when it was released in 1994. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I would highly recommend the game. Yeah, same here. Absolutely, like, get this game. (laughs) Just buy it. (laughs) Totally. And hopefully we can get that sequel. Ah, yes. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to add? Hmm, let's see. I think, yeah, I think I've pretty much covered all my thoughts on this game, like how much I just really love it. Yeah, totally. Me too. Me too. So, yeah, let's wrap up here. Mm-hmm. Anything you'd like to plug? Well, I, as I stated in the previous podcast, I, I made the switch over to tech, the tech industry, so... I'm currently writing for Tech Radar, which is one of the large tech sites on the internet. So you can check out all of my pieces if you love tech. You can check out my pieces there. Although I still haven't completely abandoned my gaming roots because I do a weekly feature, which is essentially the best PC games that you may have missed, either like recent releases or just general like hidden gems or whatnot. And I just summarize. So definitely check that out. There's some really fun like games that I think I put in there that I think a lot of people would enjoy if they gave it a chance. My next installment will be coming out for this tomorrow. So stay tuned for that as well. So that That's it for me. Cool. Yeah, and we'll put links to that stuff in, in the show notes. Awesome. Yeah, and as for uh, me, I don't really have a whole lot of uh, stuff personally to plug, but yeah, for Combo Chain, I just want to remind you all about the Patreon. There's I've, There's been a lot of stuff that I've been putting up on there recently. did an episode on Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within with Leland Chuck, who's been on the show in the past. I've been doing some like mini, kind of mini episodes about uh, kind of more obscure JRPGs. Like I just did one for uh, Alno Surge. And uh, yeah, so there's a bunch of stuff going up on the Patreon and this exclusive for $5 subscribers 
And if you want to subscribe just for $2, you can get episodes a few days early. And then, yeah, well, as far as other Combo Chain stuff, we're on Twitter at Combo Chain FM. And we're on Facebook. I think it's just Combo Chain. And yeah, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That really helps get the word mm-hmm. out. Or if you're not on Apple, Apple Podcasts, like let your other JRPG friends know that this podcast exists and that you enjoy it. Hopefully you enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, thank you so much for listening. All right. And take care, everyone. Thank you.